Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the heartland, I am delivering them to you from the heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear from the Heartland. Hello, Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 5 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Hey, Heartlanders, you guys patrons yet? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to join the club. You'll get ad-free versions of this and all our other podcasts, including hundreds of standalone releases from our audio archives dating back to 2012. It's a great way to show your support and you get a whole lot for it. What's a ghost's favorite makeup? Mascara? <laughs> what did the ghost buy at the bar? Duh, booze. What's a ghost with a broken leg called? A hobbling goblin. Who did the ghost take to prom? A ghoul friend? <laughs> Numerous delightful, eerie, haunting tales tonight. Let's get after it. In Season 3, Episode 21, Fear from the Heartlands embarked on the journey of Tales from the Tainted Isle. We've enjoyed bringing you the trials and tribulations of paranormal investigator Solomon White. So, roughly eight months later, we bring you the last seven stories in this collection of shorts, which focus on haunting specters and the haunting of the mine. And now for your indulgence, The Fallen House, The Bells of Weirdale, The Death of a Lord, The Haunting of Fenton House, The Man Who Did Not Die, The Mark of the Ripper, The Man I Became by Dan Weatherer. Fallen House, Hales Hall, Cheadle, Staffordshire, September 1874. Upon my return to usual duties, the first letter that caught my interest came from a Mr. Cecil Plant, who, 
having been tasked by the bank to sell Hales Hall, an 18th century manor house located in the quiet town of Cheadle, Staffordshire, had written to seek my aid on the matter. While he wrote little as to the nature of his problem, he explained that only a person with my background and knowledge would be able to both understand the essence of his dilemma and offer a possible solution. I met Mr. Plant at the entrance to the property. He was a small man of smart appearance, though the shadows beneath his eyes and the puffiness in his cheeks suggested that the stresses of his duties were beginning to take a toll on him. We exchanged pleasantries and he showed me inside, marching ahead and insisting that we get straight to it. We passed numerous rooms, all of which were devoid of furniture and character. The building seemed to house an oppressive atmosphere, one I took to be due to the lack of occupation and the general state of disrepair. Mr. Plant chatted all during our brief passage through the house, explaining how the previous owner, Dr. Raymond Chartstis, had fallen upon hard times, having lost his wife, his silk mill, and eventually the ownership of the hall. Reaching the doors to the study, Mr. Plant paused for a moment. Prepare yourself for quite the oddest sight that you might ever see, he warned, before throwing open the door. Behold, see what remains of the former owner. He pointed to a spot in the center of the room. Try as we might, we cannot rid this place of his stain. The study was bare save for thick scarlet carpet. Blood spattered the white of the ceiling at irregular intervals, and a pool had collected in the center of the carpet. The scent of iron hung heavy in the air, and the atmosphere of the room at once began to both sing and scream. My head started to spin, and I felt suddenly nauseous. I reached for the frame of the door to steady myself for a moment. Quite the sight, isn't it? remarked Mr. Plant. Would you believe that this is the third carpet we've laid? All at the bank's expense, might I add. But who would want to buy a property still covered in the blood of its former owner, I ask? Would you? I shook my head and regained my composure. The atmosphere of the room was a heady mix of torment and anguish. Exposure to it had affected me in a way I had not expected. Mr. Plant, however, seemed oblivious to both the character of the room and its effect upon me. I did not know it then, but this was a sign that I was becoming more attuned to the supernatural. My third eye and my intuition were gradually becoming one and the same. Go on, touch it, said Mr. Plant. You'll find it wet, always is. No matter how many carpets we lay, no matter how many times the poor maid scrub it away, it keeps seeping back through. Same as the stain on the ceiling. Look, he pointed towards the spattered pattern of blood. Sometimes it drips if we leave it for too long. He puckered his face in disgust. Most unpleasant. I asked him how the blood had come to stain the ceiling. Arterial spray, or so the physician said when I asked the same. I wouldn't know. Never seen a dead one before. Tentatively, my head still spinning, I entered the room. The feelings of despair that the room contained increased with every step I took towards the dark puddle on the carpet. Swallowing hard and focusing my concentration, I bent towards the stain and brushed my fingers over the surface. They came away thick with blood. I tasted my fingertips to ascertain whether the substance was indeed what it appeared to be. From the corner of my eye, I saw Mr. Plant grimace. 
I asked him if this was a hoax, citing that if it were, it was a humorless joke to play. Such was the amount of fresh blood splashed onto the carpet and ceiling. He assured me that it was not. The property was securely locked on leaving each night, remaining so until he arrived the next morning. Regardless of how many hours the maid spent scrubbing the stain away, come the reopening of the study the next day, the stains were back, fresh and wet. With the noise of the room in my head beginning to subside, I asked as to the fate of Dr. Chartstis. Sad, really, but a sign of the times. His silk mill down Brookhouse Way went belly up. He couldn't compete with the new factories that have sprung of late. When the money dried, his wife took off. Not sure where. She didn't show for the funeral. With her gone, he was alone with his debt. I know he didn't want to give up the hall. It had been in his family for generations, you see. But the bank needs its debts paid. And, well, they had to take it in the end. People say that he was so overcome with grief, he took a razor to his throat and, well, you've seen the mess. This was five weeks ago now. I'm at a loss to explain what is going on, and as you can imagine, no one wants to buy a house covered in blood. I nodded, joining Mr. Plant in the study doorway, the noise in my head diminishing further with every step towards the exit. Do you know what might be causing this? He asked, a hopeful look on his face. I shook my head and instructed that the maids be sent for so that I might observe their efforts to clear away the blood. Once satisfied, I said I would ensure that all doors and windows that provided access to the room were nailed shut. I then suggested I spend the night keeping vigil. Relieved that I had taken his issues seriously, he dutifully agreed and set off to find the hall's cleaning employees. The maids worked tirelessly throughout the afternoon, preparing the study to my exact instruction. I decided that it would prove futile to clean the carpet at this point. Its presence only hindered my investigation, so I ordered it stripped back so the floor beneath be exposed. The polished oak floorboards were stained far more than the carpet above might suggest, and the maids worked until all traces of blood were removed. A similar effort was applied to the spatter on the ceiling, though, as this was a much smaller, less concentrated amount of blood, this was removed quickly. Content with their efforts, I set about sealing the windows. At first, Mr. Plant objected to my methods, citing that it would incur a great cost to replace and repair the damage done by my meddling, but after explaining the importance of setting a controlled environment, one that I knew to be all but impossible to enter without my knowledge, he relented. Come dusk, I bid farewell to Mr. Plant and his cleaning staff, assuring them that by morning I would endeavor to provide him with answers. Reluctantly, he retired home. Exposed to the atmosphere of the house alone, I was able to better get a feel for the place. Here was a hall that, while grand and opulent at one time, had fallen into a state of disrepair, a result of unforeseen bad luck. There was no impression of home here, only an oppressive sense of brooding and remorse. With my back rested against the wall of the study, I pulled my blanket tightly to my chest and wished for dawn. It was after midnight when I heard what at first I interpreted to be distant but definite groans. Several times did I walk the floors of the hall to locate their origin. Each time I returned to my vigil outside of the study, none the wiser as to their origin. 
My weary mind argued that it might be nothing more than a result of the howling gale which had buffeted the walls and windows of the hall for several hours. Suddenly I caught the sound of an anguished voice emanating from within the study. The voice was male, the tone fearful and aggrieved. With time, neither forethought nor reason, I took to the door with my hammer, clawing at the nails which I had used earlier to seal the door closed. As I did so, the voice in the study grew louder. I worked quickly, for whoever was inside was likely responsible for the bloodstains and was mere seconds from apprehension. The final nail gave way. I forced the door open and stumbled inside, where I caught sight of an elderly gentleman garbed in black silk trousers and a white shirt, taking a razor blade to his throat and with one fluid motion slicing it open. Gushes of blood arced upwards, spattering and staining the pristine white ceiling, and a ragged scream of anguish filled the air. Panic took hold of me, and I moved towards the man so that I might aid him, only to watch in disbelief as he fell to the floor and vanished before my eyes. All that remained in the study was a rapidly expanding puddle of blood and the echoing cries of Dr. Chartstis. It was dawn when Mr. Plant discovered me sitting outside the open study. My face was speckled with blood, as were my clothes. I dare not imagine what his first thought upon catching sight of me might have been, but from the look of terror on his face, I fear he thought I had committed murder in his absence. Ignoring me, he rushed into the study, mouth agape, before proclaiming, It's bloody back again. I knew it. I bloody knew it. I joined him at the puddle of blood and explained what I had witnessed earlier that morning. So you are saying that you saw his ghost? Said Mr. Plant, blinking profusely as he tried to comprehend my words. I nodded and suggested that the local parish priest might be the most appropriate person with whom to speak regarding the matter. My studies had included several cases where blessings had been administered unto a property or object, and while I did not fully understand the science behind the ritual, I knew well enough that I was fully incapable of conducting one successfully. I left Mr. Plant and his team of housemaids as they worked to remove the stain from the floor. Later that year, I received a further letter from Mr. Plant, thanking me for my time and informing me of the action chosen by the bank. Apparently, a blessing had been carried out by a priest from a neighboring parish, albeit unsuccessfully. Mr. Plant assured me that the bloodstains still remained and that he had passed the task of the hall sale on to a colleague. To my knowledge, Ailes Hall stands vacant and unsold. The Bells of Weirdale Wastwater, Wasdale, Cumbria, July 1875 A university professor by the name of Harold Bromby had written to me during the autumn of 1874 to inform me of a tale from his childhood. Professor Bromby explained how he had lived in Cumbria, near to the body of water known locally as Wastwater, where the story of the fictional village of Weirdale was often spoken of. Wordale, it was said, had been a tiny hamlet once situated on the banks of Wastwater. The story tells that there was a particular summer entirely devoid of sun, one where it rained constantly for a month. The lake, unaccustomed to such heavy rainfall, began to swell until its banks struggled to contain its waters. One night in July, while the village slept, 
the lake burst its banks. Within minutes, the hamlet was submerged, and it is said that not one villager escaped the flood. Those near to the shores of the lake during the month of July often tell of the tolling of an unseen bell emanating from beneath the surface. Professor Brumby offered that this might be a toll of warning, perhaps similar to one uttered by a vigilant soul who, having seen the oncoming flood, scaled the steps of the church steeple and rang the bell in a bid to warn those still sleeping of impending peril. It is said that on a particularly dry summer's day, the spire of Wardale Church can be seen protruding from the waters. The professor asked that I explore the area come July, with the intention of reporting my findings to him and his students the following autumn. Intrigued by this story, I wrote to Jasmine, inviting her to join me on the banks of Wast Water for what promised to be a curious, and more importantly, safe night of investigation. On the morning of my departure some several months later, I had yet to receive a reply. I opted to alight at Senton Bridge, which was the nearest village to the lake. The weather being pleasant, I decided not to secure a room at the local tavern, instead choosing to pitch a tent lakeside. This would afford me ample time to investigate the lake without needing to cut short my visit to hike back to the village. Lost Water was a sight to behold. Though nowhere near as expansive as Loch Ness, she was every bit as picturesque. Flanked by mountains on either side and bookended by craggy flatlands, the water lay still and undisturbed, mirroring the cloudless summer sky with perfect symmetry. The winds that I had expected to thunder between the mountains and across the flatlands were noticeable in their absence. Indeed, this was a pleasant place in which to spend a summer's eve. I pitched my tent at the lake's edge, choosing a location that afforded me a vast, uninterrupted view of the water. That day was one of the warmest in recent times, if memory serves correctly, though no sign of the Wordale Parish steeple could I see. I spent several hours walking the banks, determining in my mind where the lake of old lain before the flood and where Wordale might lie beneath the surface. It is important to mention that a village by the name of Wordale was mentioned in the Domesday Book and was described as being located ashore a vast expanse of water in this area. The last mention of Wordale occurred in 1724, courtesy of an explorer's guide to the area. Henry Colville's Foothills and the Lakes contained accounts and maps of the area. He described Wordale as a charming yet naive backwater, rife with rose-cheeked parlor maids and grubby little children. He estimated the population as 63. I also found reference to a series of floods that blighted the area in 1672, though there was nothing at all of the fate of Wordale. History books make no mention of the village, save for those references noted above. I returned to my tent at the onset of dusk. My limbs ached and my spirit, though weary, was content. There were worse places to spend the night, I reasoned, and with the clear sky slowly beginning to darken, I kindled a small fire and watched the stars wake. I caught her scent, sweet and light, long before I heard her place her luggage onto the ground behind me. The sense of smell is often largely overlooked, but I have found it to be quite capable of instantly conjuring memories with an astounding depth of clarity. Jasmine's perfume had just such an effect upon me, and for a moment, 
I was lost in memories of our embrace at Mercy's cemetery. I waited, curious as to what she might do next. After a while of listening to her rummaging and rustling, I stood and turned to face her. Jasmine had busied herself erecting a tent of her own. She paused for a moment, smiled, then asked if I had given much thought to the helping of a lady in need. Having eaten, we warmed ourselves by the fire I had lit earlier that evening. I regaled her with the story of Wordale, and she, with high interest, asked for my opinion of the tale. I explained my doubts as to the village's existence, and she listened attentively. Having seemingly heard enough, she nodded and remarked that I was still as cynical as the day we had first met. I nodded and laughed. After a moment of awkward silence, both of our attentions returned to the water the surface of which reflected the night sky in all of her glory. Such was the stillness of the water, the urge was great that we should cast aside our cares and our clothes and wade headlong into the heavens. I loved him, you know, once anyway. It was Jasmine who broke the expectant silence. He was once so driven, so confident. It was never about his money. You understand that, I'm sure. I nodded. I saw Jasmine's soul, or so I believed, though I would not say as much at the time. Greed played no part in her character. It was always the man behind the title who fascinated me, she continued. Few ever saw his spirit. They only ever met a practiced, refined man, a diligent man playing a role. Perhaps that is what is killing him. I turned to her, unsure as how I might comfort her. Her eyes remained locked on the surface of the water, and I decided it would be better to let her talk. He has not long for this world, of that I am sure. The physicians are at a loss as to what ails him. I have given my all in terms of care and attention, but when you sent your invitation... Try as I might to ignore all thought of seeing you again, I could not. I am here for respite. I am here because I feel at one with you, though I ought not to. What happened in mercy? I interrupted, saying that no explanation was needed and that I would gladly relieve her of whatever burdens weighed upon her soul. She smiled at me and I placed my arm around her shoulders. She rested her head on my chest and... Her posture eased as she relaxed onto me. At that moment, I felt complete. We awoke with a start. The noise that filled the air seemed extraordinary, yet strangely familiar. Still feeling the effects of a rapidly retreating slumber, we climbed to our feet. The noise was coming from the lake. We stood in silence for several moments, neither of us daring to speak for fear of breaking the other's concentration. The sound had a steady rhythm. Its tone rose and fell in regular increments. Bells, said Jasmine, her eyes alive with excitement. It sounds like church bells. At that moment, as though by invitation, the tolling of the bells, and I have no idea how this was possible, burst free from the distortion of the water, ringing loud and clear across the valley. Such was the noise that Jasmine and I covered our ears to protect them. The pealing of bells was quickly joined by another sound, a sound at first distant that built quickly in fury and intensity, eventually drowning out the sound of the bells altogether. 
Jasmine turned to me, a look of concern on her face. The roar of oncoming water rose to an almost inaudible din. Afraid, Jasmine grabbed a hold of me and I her. My senses were in conflict. On the one hand, my hearing told me that a wall of water was rapidly surging towards us, yet my eyes relayed only images of calm. The rush of unseen water washed over us before finally beginning to recede. Jasmine trembled as I held her and whispered soothing sentiment in a bid to calm her nerves. After a moment, more the sound of the water had subsided completely and all was silent once again. Having collected herself, Jasmine released her grip on me and took a step back. The water? You heard it? I'm sure you did. Where did it go? I nodded and was about to offer an explanation when I caught sight of a luminous trail of light weaving beneath the surface of the water. Jasmine noted the direction of my gaze, and no doubt my look of surprise, and turned towards the water. Where a breath before there had been a single trail of light beneath the water, there were suddenly many. Jasmine and I watched in awe as within moments the entire lake was bathed in an effervescent aura of white. Then suddenly, without warning, the body of light quickly broke free of the waters of the lake. It hung before us for a moment before breaking off into separate glowing trails once more, which in unison rose quickly and silently into the night sky. All too quickly the trails of light were gone, and all at the lake was silent and dark. The next morning, while we packed, Jasmine and I exchanged theories as to what we had witnessed the previous night. I think we relived the moment that the village flooded, began Jasmine, her tone assured and confident. We heard the bells, which would have been the warning sign, like in the stories, but we experienced much more. We heard the rush of the water, and I think, you shall call me foolish, but I think we saw the release of the villagers' souls. I think we saw them depart for heaven. Smiling and impressed at her theory, I felt it impossible to find fault. It made as much sense to me as any. I believed we had experienced a common type of haunting whereby a traumatic event, such is its impact on time and space, is imprinted on its surroundings, replaying time and again to the unfortunate and terrified few who might find themselves caught within its influence. Of course, this was but a theory, though I would investigate many more cases that would provide further evidence to support it, and I would present it as such, crediting Lady Foxby equally for her ideas when relaying my findings to the professor and his students. Our goodbye was one of awkward touch and fumbled talk. Neither said to the other what was really on the tips of our tongues, though looking back, I would question whether we needed to. Jasmine returned to her dying husband and I to my cramped office. Neither of us knew the next time that we would meet, but each departed feeling closer to the other. The Death of a Lord Burton Agnes, Yorkshire, November 1875 the envelope lay on my desk, neat and perfectly centered. The elegant handwriting, though immediately familiar to me, implied nothing of the sorrow contained within. I knew the purpose of the letter and its contents before opening the envelope. No, before touching the envelope. Is it possible that such a letter may hold the energies and emotions of the author? 
feeling the cold air numb my fingertips as they hovered over the paper. At that moment, I would have agreed this to be so. Lord Foxby had passed away three days earlier, taken during the night by an untreatable fever. Jasmine informed me that his passing had been peaceful. I was required to attend the funeral. Specifically, I was to stay at Burton Agnes Hall at the request of Jasmine. The rest of the letter consisted of the specifics of my stay. It was a perfunctory piece, and her grief was apparent, at least to me, not in what she said, but in what she did not. I departed for Yorkshire later that afternoon. I was met by members of the hall's domestic staff, all of whom were attired suitably in black. None would raise their eyes to meet mine as they busied about their work. I could not decide whether this was a trait of legitimate mourning or whether, as funeral rites often called for, merely the actions of individuals playing their parts. It is true that Lord Foxby had been well-liked among his staff, and I entered the hall hoping that their grief was genuine. My luggage was taken to my quarters and I was instructed to enter the grand hall where the body of Lord Foxby lay so that I might pay my respects. The coffin of Lord Foxby lay in the center of the hall and was adorned with flowers, keepsakes, and wreaths of varying sizes and colors. A solitary mourner knelt beside the coffin, dressed in an ornate mourning dress. Jasmine's face was hidden from sight, courtesy of a black lace veil. She knelt still and silent. Aside from her and the two men by the doors, assigned by the church to keep a watchful eye on the corpse of the Lord, the room was empty. I approached Jasmine tentatively, my every step ringing out loudly across the emptiness of the hall. Reaching her, I paused. She did not look up. Such was the requirement of the mourning ritual. A woman, it was said, was to mourn with dignity and passion, for hers was the duty of care in life and death. My hand hovered over her shoulder. I was unsure how to proceed. I desperately wanted to console her, to take her in my arms and help rid her of her sorrow, yet protocol and my respect for Jasmine meant that this was neither the time nor the place. Instead, I stepped forwards and addressed the body of Lord Foxby. I forget the exact words I used, though I afforded him a degree of unreserved respect. Foxby was a good man, and though I was conflicted by his death, this was a man I held in high esteem. My final words to him outlined this, and upon taking my leave, I heard Jasmine begin to weep. I have said I felt a degree of conflict over the death of Lord Foxby, and this was true, selfish though it might appear. I am but a man, flawed and imperfect. To recognize one's faults is to understand oneself, and with the benefit of years, I am able to do so now. It is true that I loved Jasmine, and I suspected she loved me in return. Let me be clear here. I did not see Lord Foxby as an obstacle to our relationship. Jasmine was duty-bound to him by way of marriage, and though we had shared brief moments of high emotion together, not once did I make her marriage any of my business. Such was my love and admiration for Jasmine, seeing her loyalty only added to my adoration. Still, with his passing, she was no longer bound to him. She had cared for her husband and remained faithful to her vows. I realized that a period of mourning would be required, and I vowed that I would make myself available to Jasmine as and when needed and not until. Did I feel guilty harboring the feelings I had towards her? I will admit that sometimes I did. But I would counter that, the heart wants what the heart wants, and as of yet, 
our actions had hurt no one but ourselves. Jasmine would grieve her husband, and in time would look to return to life anew. Whether we would resume our friendship was in the hands of fate. All I could do was support her through this difficult time, if that was to be what she wished. St. Martin's Church lay in the grounds of Burton Agnes Hall. Those who had traveled to mark the passing of Lord Foxby far outnumbered the seats the small church held, and a great many mourners, myself included, found themselves standing outside. The funeral procession passed by us, and Jasmine, her face still hidden from view, saw me standing at the side of the path and motioned that I stand by her side. I could hear the mutters of disapproval coming from the crowd as I took my place next to her. Did I care? Not for a moment. The way I saw it was that Jasmine required my presence during this difficult time. Though it was not proper practice to call upon the aid of another during a period of mourning, and indeed many assembled did criticize her actions in the years that followed, I stood true to my principles. Jasmine needed my support, and I gave it unequivocally. As the funeral service drew to a close and the coffin of Lord Foxby was taken from the foot of the altar to be laid in his family mausoleum, I felt a strong hand grasp my forearm. I placed my arm around Jasmine's shoulder, much as I had done on the banks of Wastwater a few months earlier. She turned towards me, shaking and overcome with grief. I whispered to her that I would be here for her, no matter what fate may dictate. She placed her forehead on my chest and began to weep. There is little else of note left to say regarding the matter of the funeral. Lord Foxby was interred in the crypt which bore his family name, and the rest of the day was spent in polite conversation with assorted mourners. Lord Foxby, it seemed, had been held in high esteem, and so was his widow. Speaking of Jasmine, I maintained a respectable distance for the remainder of the afternoon. It would not do to draw attention to our friendship and encourage disparaging remarks on this of all days. I observed her from afar as she spoke to each mourner in turn. How my heart longed to ease her suffering. Seeing those we love endure pain is the cruelest of life's tests. Unable to do as much, I at least felt satisfied that I had afforded her some form of comfort. My needs were of no importance. The next morning, Jasmine, I was informed, had confined herself to her quarters and did not wish to be disturbed. I understood. The effort of the previous day had likely left her drained. Abandoning her to be alone with her grief was one of the most difficult moments of my life. Every instinct called for me to remain behind so that I might offer her support. This I quickly recognized was my own selfish desire. I departed later that morning. I wished not to intrude upon her further. She knew where I was, should she be in need of my presence. The Haunting of Fenton House Hampstead, London, January 1876 It was Lady Grace Firth who sought me out whilst attending the funeral of Lord Foxby and not the other way around. I had no intention of discussing my work nor my experiences, as it was neither the time nor the place, but it seemed my reputation preceded me, and against the will of the beleaguered Lord Graceforth, I was privy to a series of incidents which tarnished the reputation of Fenton House, whether I wished it or not. 
The lady informed me that their home had become known in the city of London as one rife with hauntings. Indeed, the notoriety of Fenton House kept all but the staunchest of souls from visiting and was causing considerable harm to the standing of Lord and Lady Grace Firth. This caused the lady a great degree of distress, and she was on the verge of tears as she informed me of the failure of several recent dinner parties. Guests refused to stay the night and often left before the serving of the main course. Such was the ferocity of the haunting. One bedroom on the second floor had been sealed for a number of years. None of the household staff would set foot in the room after a particular incident one morning, the details of which caused Lady Graceforth to break down further whilst attempting to enlighten me. To alleviate her stress, and to prevent drawing further attention, this was a funeral and a particular behavior was to be expected of its guests, I assured her that I would visit in the new year with the intention of staying at Fenton House until the cause of her anguish and of the mysterious disturbances which plagued her home was isolated and explained. With my mind fixed firmly on Jasmine and the occasion of the funeral, I admit that I gave little thought as to who or what might be manifesting within Fenton House, and come the new year, I foolishly approached the investigation ill-prepared. It was a mistake that I would endeavor not to make again. A former merchant's house, characteristic of the 17th century, Fenton had passed through the hands of various family lines, all of which had suffered bad fortune of one kind or another upon coming into ownership of the property. With such a checkered past, tales of a curse abounded, the most popular of which related to the original owner, Percival Manstrom. Percival was one of a collection of merchants who first brought tea to the United Kingdom. Such was the demand for the drink in high society, his profits soared quickly, and he commissioned Fenton House to be built as his home. There were, however, many who grew jealous of his newfound wealth, and one such business associate, a trader by the name of Frederick Bistol, was said to have made demands upon Manstrom and his business. When Manstrom defied Bistol, so went the tale, Manstrom's youngest son, Elliot, who was aged seven at the time, was kidnapped by Bistol's men, and when Manstrom refused to pay the asking price for the release of his son, Bistol's men murdered him and dumped his body into the Thames. Distraught at the loss of his child, but defiant in the face of those who would see him ruined, Manstrom ordered work to continue on Fenton House, which he regarded as his legacy. However, with an influx of tea now flooding the country, his initial monopoly on the market faltered and his profits soon fell. With the completion of the house having sapped all of his savings, his wife Esme left him, taking their surviving son Eldritch with her. Racked with guilt, Manstrom hanged himself from the balcony overlooking the great staircase. The seeds of the troubled history of Fenton House were sown. No owner who followed could escape the bad fortune associated with the property. Some sold up after spending only a few months as owners, Others fell ill and died under unexplained circumstances. One committed murder, another suicide. Several went mad and were incarcerated in Bethlehem Southwark. Now, it seemed, was the turn of Lord and Lady Graceforth to suffer. He's not well, said Lady Graceforth, as I bent to shake the hand of the seated Lord. He hasn't been for a while. Lord Gracefirth sat in a tall-backed armchair by a large, ornate open fireplace. A red woolen blanket lay across his lap. I introduced myself and my intention. 
Not once did he turn his attention from the flames of the fireplace, which in spite of burning fiercely, made no impact upon the freezing climate of the room. He just stares at the fire or stares out of the window. I can't get a word from him. Nobody can, continued Lady Graceforth. This place shall be the death of him, I swear. I assured her it wouldn't, and that every effort would be taken to ascertain the cause of the disturbances that plagued Fenton House. I certainly hope that is the case, Mr. White, said Lady Graceforth after she had outlined the history of their troubles. For I fear the worst. They said this place was cursed when we purchased it. That might explain why we paid so little for it in the first place. Be that as it may... I am not willing for either my husband or me to fall victim to its torment. As I walked the grounds of Fenton House, not once did I feel at ease. The gardens, though designed and maintained to a high standard of care, afforded me not one moment of relaxation, so unable was I to shake the feeling that I was being observed by unseen eyes. The house held similar vibrations. I experienced several cold spots where there ought to have been none and heard steady footsteps following after my own, only to turn to confront the individual so keen to follow me in my wake but find no one there. The kitchen in particular held an uncomfortable air, though I am sure that I was the only person aware of the rancid stench of rotten meat that blanketed the scent of whatever meal the cook and his staff were preparing. I left the room after a short time with my nose pinched and my stomach turning. It was all I could do to stop myself from vomiting. Judging by the manner of ease in which the kitchen staff went about their duties, I can only assume that they either had no sense of smell or had become so used to the odor as to tolerate it with ease. I was required to ask one of the maids to show me to the infamous second-floor bedroom, as the entrance to the entire floor had been locked several months previously. Lord and Lady Gracefirth had turned over the floor to whatever evil manifested within the walls of Fenton House, the lady's words, not mine, and refused to even set foot on the staircase which led up to the second floor. It took most of the afternoon to source a member of the house staff bold enough first to request the key from Lady Gracefirth, who in turn kept it locked away in a location known only to her, and second to lead me into the bedroom that I should call my own that night. Upon setting foot inside, it was apparent that I would find little in the way of rest unless I first dedicated a large part of the evening to the cleaning of the room. A carpet of dust covered every surface, and a number of cobwebs hung between bedpost, wall, window, and wardrobe. The room is untouched since the stay of the last guest, a master mock fellows, said the maid, who despite the warnings from her seniors, had volunteered to accompany to my room. We found him the next morning over by the pond, she continued, pointing out of the window towards the far corner of the grounds as she did so. He wore only his night robe. Cook said he was blue when they found him. Talk as he got ill. Had to stay in the hospital for a while. The lady locked the room up after that. We heard the first up here since. I hope you don't scare easy, mister. Exhausted from cleaning the bedroom, I had fallen eventually asleep only to awake minutes later. It was not the cold that woke me, nor was it the persistent slamming of doors which had plagued my stay from the moment I had laid my head upon the pillow. No, again it was that peculiar sensation of being watched. 
Once one is of the mindset that one's every move, one's every breath is under the scrutiny of another, it is all but impossible to put such ideas from one's thoughts. I sat upright and began to cough, my sudden movement having disturbed the layer of dust which had gathered upon the bed covers. I had left the curtains thrown back so that I might not suffer the torment of the bedroom in total darkness, for the night held court to a full moon and the room was bathed in a dull white light. Pressed against the window was a face, an impossible face at that, the face of a young boy, his throat slit, his neck open and rotting, his mouth twisted into an inhuman grin. The face at the window regarded me with hollow eyes. He watched me as I sat still and afraid, daring not to move, not even to breathe as I stared back at him. Need I remind you that my bedroom was on the second floor? I gathered myself, still under the watchful gaze of the apparition, finding my slippers by my bedside and sliding my feet into them. I stood and turned to face the boy again. His smirk widened as I took a step towards the window. First one, then another. The boy did not move. He watched intently as I neared him, his smirk developing a curious tilt. I reached the window. Our eyes remained locked. From my vantage point, I could observe the rest of his features. He was a small child, dressed in a torn and ragged water-stained nightshirt. I guessed his appearance to resemble that of a six- or seven-year-old boy. We stood facing one another, separated only by a thin pane of glass, each gaining the measure of the other. My heart thundered in my chest and the cold of the night numbed my extremities. It was his presence which chilled the air, of that I have no doubt. We remained stood before one another, neither willing to yield and flee, until suddenly the boy opened his mouth inhumanly wide. I testify that it looked as though his jaw became dislocated or would have had the boy been of flesh and blood. Such was the terrible angle at which the jaw hung. There came forth that same rancid stench I had experienced in the kitchen, and I felt suddenly unsteady and nauseous. A high-pitched wail filled the air, shaking the glass in the window frame as the boy slowly began to descend down further past the first floor until he disappeared into the ground beneath me. It was then I realized my room was situated above the kitchens. I explained over breakfast the next morning my encounter with the apparition of the boy. I mentioned that the odor I had faced during our meeting was one and the same as the stench I had noted in the kitchen earlier that day. Funny enough, no other member of the household would admit to having experienced that odor, which led me to believe it existed on a separate plane to our existence, one perhaps accessible only to the supernaturally gifted. I suggested that the floor of the kitchen and the neighboring grounds be pulled up. My theory was that I had met the apparition of the merchant's son and that the body of this poor wretch lay interred somewhere beneath the manor house, likely nearby to where I had seen his apparition submerge itself and that the resultant haunting may well have been a plea for a proper burial. I left Lord and Lady Graceforth in good spirit, for the advice that I had imparted, I was promised, was to be acted upon. True to their word, I received notice a few weeks later that the crumbled skeletal remains of a young child had been unearthed beneath the kitchen floor. As per my instructions, the bones were transferred to a nearby cemetery and a Catholic burial followed. There have been no more reported disturbances at Fenton House since the burial. Indeed, Lord Graceforth was freed of his mysterious stupor and lived to the age of 94.
Lady Graceforth elected not to stay in Fenton House after the death of her husband, citing that it was too grand a home to dwell within alone. The property is now owned by a distinguished botanist. The Man Who Did Not Die Dursingham, Kingsland, Norfolk, February 1876 Death has a season, of that I am sure. During the months of November through March, when the nights seem to run cold and uninterrupted, death works tirelessly to take those we love from us. I have seen a definite pattern. My parents passed in December and January, respectively, barely a year apart. Lord Foxby passed in November, and more than I care to mention have succumbed to death's touch during those long winter months. Perhaps it is then that the spirit ails most, the absent son unable to give strength and hope to those who have given in to the fatigue brought about by age and sickness. Perhaps ill luck runs freely in the cold and the dark. Though I see patterns and I venture theories, I cannot prove a season of death as such. I just know it to be true. Which is why it seemed natural to receive a letter in the winter of 1876 on the matter of death, or should I say deaths, with regard to one man. Perplexed? I am sure you are, as was I. Puzzled further with the family of Joshua Roberts in the parish of Dursingham, who, having mourned the passing of Mr. Roberts, had buried him in the grounds of St. Nicholas's three times over. The reason for the letter? Mr. Roberts, fearing being buried alive yet again and having heard of my reputation, indicated that should his death be suspected once more, I was to be sent for immediately so that I, and only I, may ascertain whether he had truly passed away. Of course, I could understand Mr. Roberts' fear of being buried alive. After all, who would want to wake in a cramped dark box with no room to move and only a few minutes of air with which to breathe? Your cries and bangs unheeded, muffled by the damp earth. Your grieving loved ones standing above, oblivious to your torment. Not I, that is for sure. But to be declared dead and then buried three times? Either the village physician was vastly unqualified or something was seriously amiss with the physiology of Joshua Roberts. I was greeted at the door to the family home by Frances Roberts, Joshua's long-suffering wife. She was a frail woman of middle age. She stood with a stoop and dark shadows circled her eyes. She ushered me inside and instructed me to sit. A small fire burned in the fireplace. There was one other person in the room. He was a young fellow, well-dressed, though he looked a tad out of sorts. I later discovered that was due to my presence. Dr. Monroe, said the man without standing. We made brief eye contact as I sat before he turned his attention to the fireplace. Honestly, I see no need for your presence. He said he wanted him here. Said him by name, should this happen again, said Francis from over my shoulder. We only just got him out last time. He was purple for God's... Francis paused, suddenly ashamed. Forgive me. I forget myself sometimes. I assured her there was nothing to forgive and settled back to listen to the account of the many deaths of Joshua Roberts. The first time, the doctor began, we found him up in the north field. He'd collapsed over the plow. By the time I'd gotten to him, he was cold and stiff. 
but he weren't dead, interrupted Frances as she set a kettle of water on the small stove located at the rear of the room. To all appearances, he certainly looks so, snapped the doctor, his face flushed crimson. He had no pulse, you understand, and he was cold as death. I've been around enough corpses to know how they feel to the fingertips. Yes, but he weren't, said Francis again. The body was kept in the home that night, so it might be washed in accordance with the usual funeral rites. We buried him the next morning. Tried to, chirped Francis, her back to both the doctor and me. We had not added the lid yet. The family requested an open casket until the final moments of the service. He sat bolt upright mid-reading, continued Dr. Monroe. Gave us all a fright. Poor Mrs. Tanner, the organist, collapsed and hit her head on the keys. The dreadful note that the organ produced merely punctuated our horror. Francis stood between us, passing a cup of hot tea to each in turn. He made a full recovery, though, didn't he? It used to joke that he was once dead, but got better. How we laughed. Until it happened again, that is. Dr. Monroe took a sip of his tea, placed it aside, and leaned towards me. The second time, it happened upstairs. We were in bed, interrupted Francis again. He's normally such a fusspot, always tossing and turning, but he hadn't moved a muscle in hours. Of course, I couldn't sleep because I knew something was amiss. I spoke to him a few times, but he didn't answer. He can be like that, though most men are. So I gave him a shove. He was cold as ice. I threw open the curtains and he was lying there, stiff as a board, his eyes agog, staring straight up at the ceiling. Of course, I screamed, screamed the bloody place down. The doctor came by a while later, after I calmed a little. I turned to the doctor, who had returned his attention to his drink. Same thing again, he said. No pulse, cold, early onset rigor mortis. He was dead, I was sure. We cleaned him up and kept him here two days this time, continued Frances as she returned to her duties by the stove. Oh, he went a terrible blue color, and his head seemed to swell. It didn't look like Josh when we took him to the church. This time we got as far as lowering him into the ground, said Dr. Monroe. The priest was delivering his final blessing when the knocking began. Don't misunderstand me, said Frances as she washed dishes in the sink. It was still a shock to us all that he wasn't dead, but less so, if you can understand that. I nodded and said that I did. The third time, we'd actually started to bury him, said the doctor, finishing his drink. We got him out. He really did nearly die that time. Again, all the same symptoms. In fact, said the doctor as he moved to stand, come with me. Joshua Roberts lay stiff and still, looking to all intents and purposes deceased. I placed my thumb and forefinger either side of his throat and searched for a pulse. After a time, I withdrew my hand, unable to locate one. See? said Dr. Monroe with a smirk. He seems dead, doesn't he? Look at his complexion. Feel his skin. I did as I was instructed. Joshua looked swollen and bloated. 
blue veins lay pronounced beneath the surface of his yellowed skin. He was cold to the touch, and his flesh was tough and malleable. I inquired as to how long he had appeared this way. Two days now, almost three, answered the doctor. I'm almost convinced he is actually dead this time. Can you not smell him? It was true that there was an unpleasant smell of defecation which hung in the air. Not that was ever a proof of death. Yet I had but one test to conduct, one that had served me well previously. I took a small mirror from my carry case and placed it beneath Joshua's nostrils. For a long time, nothing happened and I could sense the growing certainty of conviction emanating from Dr. Monroe until, faint though it may have appeared at first, the mirror began to fog. I showed this first to the doctor, who, flabbergasted, could only grunt in acknowledgement. Then I called for Frances and placed the mirror beneath the nostrils of her husband, and though the wait was long, the mirror did indeed fog again. When she asked what it meant, it was the doctor who answered, is the sign of a breath taken. Though abnormally slowly, your husband is breathing. Therefore, he is alive. Satisfied that my work was done, I left the mirror with the doctor, instructing him to use it if ever in doubt. Though I never did uncover a cause of the peculiar condition which afflicted Joshua Roberts, proving he was alive was all that had been required. Mr. Roberts wrote to me upon his recovery to thank me for my time and diligence. He explained that my experiments had helped ease his fear of being buried alive, noting that the chances of such ought now to be lower for him than for most. I can only surmise that he was in fact afflicted by some kind of sleeping sickness, one in which the body enters a state of almost complete death and the mind becomes unreachable. Indeed, Mr. Roberts said to me in his correspondence that he had no recollection of his state nor ever felt any lingering ill effect. Though most definitely a curious ailment, I consider this to be a mystery of the body rather than one of the paranormal. Still a fascinating case all the same, and it leads me to wonder, just how many people are we burying who have been mistaken as dead? The Mark of the Ripper Whitechapel, London, September 1888 There was only one criminal investigation in which I partook. Though I have been asked many times since to advise on more, I politely decline. Such was the impact of said case. I wished never to involve myself in the investigation of criminal activity again. How can this be so? I hear you ask. For is not the basis of your work grounded in the macabre? Indeed it is. However, I am no lawman, and coming face to face with England's most notorious murderer was enough to quell any interest I might have entertained in examining the motive of true crime. It was August 1888 when the Whitechapel murderer first struck. By the 9th of September, Leather Apron, as he was referred to by police, had claimed his second victim. It was at this point that Detective Inspector Edmund Reed made contact in the hope that my experience in the field of the paranormal, specifically the occult, might shed light on who the perpetrator was of the grisly murders. Reed was a dedicated sort, gifted much as I, though he would be loath to admit it, with the ability to pick at the threads of truth that others in his field might easily overlook. The Whitechapel murders, however, left him baffled. 
There were no witnesses, no apparent motive, and there were no clues left behind by the killer. The savagery of the deaths, Reed used the term butchered in his initial correspondence, appalled him the most. Used to dealing with crimes of sense and motive, something about this case spoke to his instinct on a level he could neither explain nor hope to understand. Having read of my exploits and with London in the grip of hysteria, he summoned me to Scotland Yard. It was well known that all of the victims were suspected of working as prostitutes and theories abounded as to why Jack the Ripper, as the media referred to him, targeted only prostitutes. I heard many an interesting debate about why this might be, but my own instinct told me they were killed because they were easy targets. Prostitutes walked the notoriously dangerous London streets alone and would often disappear into seclusion with men they did not know. This provided the Ripper with a relatively simple means of acquiring his prey, and though I voiced my opinion loudly, it fell upon largely deaf ears. As for the brutality of the murders, I could offer little in the way of an explanation. I ruled out sacrificial motivation due to the ferocity of the attacks and the wounds inflicted, arguing that a sacrificial or a cult-driven kill would appear altogether less frenzied. The kill itself was not the motivation in such a ritual, only the release of the soul or the harvesting of an organ or body part. In the Ripper killings, the wounds inflicted upon the bodies of the women indicated a man in the throes of anger and release. Reed thanked me for my insight and assured me that my theories would be given further discussion. Feeling that my trip to the nation's capital had been somewhat in vain, I elected to stay a while and see how the case played out. How I came to be in Dutfield's yard during those early hours of Sunday the 30th of September I cannot say. Only that such was my fascination with the case of the Ripper that I found myself walking the streets of Whitechapel in an effort to capture him. Indeed, my exploits had seen me brought in for questioning several times, such was the rarity of a well-dressed man walking the streets of Whitechapel. Each time Reed explained who I was and what it was that I was doing, before taking me aside and advising that I might wish to return to Manchester or risk becoming a Ripper suspect. Alas, I did not heed his words, or had I done so, perhaps my face would have remained unblemished. I saw the woman later identified as Elizabeth Stride enter Dutfields with a tall man just before one in the morning. What initially drew me to follow this particular fellow, whom I had spied earlier that same night, was his walk, or rather his lack of it. Allow me to explain. Here was a man dressed head to foot in black, his features hidden beneath a long coat which dragged along the sodden cobbles, his face beneath a tall hat which cast his eyes in shadow. Oddly, the man had no noticeable gait. He seemed to glide along the street, though his feet were not visible due to the length of his coat. It was most unnatural, as was his height. Stooped, he stood at nearly six and a half feet. I tailed him for a half hour until he led Mrs. Stride into the darkness of said alleyway. After following her, I heard at first a cry followed by the splash of liquid upon stone. Rounding the corner, I saw it. For him would be entirely the wrong word to describe the beast, standing over Mrs. Stride's prone body. Her throat was open, the wound broad and red, blood pumped in powerful arcs from the tear in her neck. It stood over her, blade unfurled, hovering above her abdomen, a frenzied look in its eyes. I must have gasped or made some utterance in reaction to the scene before me 
for its attention shifted from the body of Mrs. Striden onto me. It stood fully erect, shedding the coat which hid its grotesque, inhuman features from the world. The thing that was the Ripper spoke to me. Oh, me brutabare. I later learned this was Latin for, you dare disturb me? In a bid to draw attention to the scene of the murder and my dangerous predicament, I began to yell. The demon, I have no other name for a creature with elongated limbs, scarlet-tinged skin, inhuman height and curved blades set as claws, advanced upon me. I stumbled backwards, falling onto my rear at the precise moment the creature swung its talons towards me. A searing pain exploded in my face and I felt the sting of hot blood enter my eyes. With my hands raised above me in pitiful defense and blind to my attacker, I awaited the final blow. It never came. An officer of the law helped me to my feet. His young colleague rested his palms against the wall opposite, bent double, and vomited at the sight of the dead woman. The drizzle clung to our skin, coating the insides of our lungs. I'll always remember the smell of that alleyway. Copper and bile. Later that night, the Ripper claimed another victim. Catherine Edowis was found butchered in Mitre Square, not long after the officers had arrived at the scene where I lay with Mrs. Stride. Edowis's body was subject to severe mutilation. It seems that though I had indeed interrupted the Ripper at work, his bloodlust had not yet been satiated. The death of Catherine Edowis occurred because of my shortcomings. Of that I am certain. I placed myself amidst a situation I had no right to meddle in. Again, naivete and arrogance blinded me, and though I had the best intentions at heart, another innocent woman was slain. I had interrupted the killer and his ritual. The murder of Mrs. Stride, for whatever reason, did not satisfy his need that night. Driven by a madness likely unfathomable to man, the demon's need to mutilate, to harvest both flesh and organ, though disturbed by my foolish intrusion, led him to kill again and quickly. Many times I have anguished over the events of that night, and though it pains me to admit, if I had resisted following the Ripper and his prey into that alley, it is likely that Edowis would have survived that night. Did I really think I could save Stride from the clutches of the Ripper? Is that why I followed after her? I shall be honest here, for this is the purpose of this book. My curiosity meant that I had to follow. I had no plan to save the woman, though of course a part of me hoped I might formulate one in haste, once having been sure as to the predicament in which she found herself. Alas, this was not to be. I panicked. Having set eyes upon the monstrosity that stood over her corpse, all rational thought, all bravado, all confidence in my abilities bled out from my being as quickly as Mrs. Stride had emptied of her blood onto those cold, damp cobblestones. I was the boy who swung helplessly from the branch of the old oak in Elverton again, reckless, naive, and in over my head. My fate lay in the hands of another, and again I was fortunate to escape with my life. Regrettably, Catherine Edowis was not. Her name is forever embedded in the list of mistakes that I torture myself with daily. I mentioned earlier that this was the first and last criminal investigation in which my services were utilized. The reasons for this are simple. Where before I had blood on my hands, such as with Nathaniel the vampire child and the creatures of Woolpit, 
Though regretful of the outcome of those investigations, I came away from the experiences seeing the error of my ways. Errors can be mended, and so long as you learn from them, better yourself because of them, there is always a chance of redemption. When faced with the Ripper, a manner of creature that I shall never be able to comprehend, I realized that on reflection, I had no idea what I would have done differently, nor what I would do if faced with a similar situation in the future. It is important to recognize the signs life has a habit of placing before us, sometimes right beneath our noses, that can somehow easily be missed. Not knowing how I would correct my mistake that night, not knowing how I might have been able to save either one or both of those women, told me that I was not intended to use my abilities for the solving of crime. It took a great many months of sorrow and reflection to arrive at that conclusion. However, I am a stout believer that if we are to truly know ourselves, we must constantly ask ourselves the questions which we knowingly shy away from, the answers to which, though difficult to understand, difficult even to admit to, ultimately set us free from any burden of guilt or self-doubt. To this day, I wear the mark of the Ripper upon me, and when I am asked about the origins of the scar which runs from the left corner of my mouth up across my eye before coming to an end on my forehead, many dispute my claim. The scar is a constant reminder of my shortcomings that night. The Whitechapel murderer was never apprehended, nor did Inspector Reed and his associates believe my description of the killer. They claimed panic and confusion clouded my account, brought about by the ordeal of my attack and having witnessed the murder of Mrs. Stride. I know this not to be true, for I have seen the evils of this world, and I have looked into the eyes of the Ripper. The Man I Became Home, June 1914 A sure sign of old age is the ever-encroaching presence of death. If fate smiles upon you and grants you a fair run of years, then first he shall come for your parents, the loss of whom is undoubtedly meant as one of life's stubborner tests. My father passed in 1894 and my mother soon after. With her dying breath, she told me not to grieve her, for it was merely her time and she was looking forward to meeting Victoria and father again. Of course, grief is a necessary reaction. One cannot move forwards until the process is all but complete. Death shall then come for your peers and your colleagues, none of whom you ever thought of as old. The feeling upon hearing news of their passing is always the same, one of shock dashed with a touch of fear. If so-and-so has passed, then who might be next? Could it soon be that my friends hear my passing away? The death of others has a nasty habit of raising the question of one's own mortality. I have attended countless funerals these past few years, and I have paid my final respects to many a treasured friend. The nature of my work afforded me the luxury of both travel and extended correspondence. I have met a great number of people during my work, many of whom I remain in contact with. I am blessed with friendship, much as I am blessed in other ways. Back to the issue of funerals. They are ghastly affairs. One never grows accustomed to their attendance and protocol. The one saving grace is that I shall not be present at mine. 
Writing my memoirs has afforded me ample time for reflection. Flicking through the pages, I can see how I have developed into a man of character. I am a firm believer that our experiences mold us. I see us born unto the world much as a piece of fresh clay is placed on the potter's wheel. The clay has the potential to become anything that the potter desires, and through his hands, a pot, vase, ashtray, or any number of items are formed. The potter's hands are the experiences that we encounter during our lifetimes, and we are the clay. We are shaped accordingly, but, and here is a crucial difference, we are not inert like clay. We can choose to a degree how to react to our experiences, and in doing so, choose how we are shaped. This is the way I see my character as having developed. I was once young, reckless, and wet behind the ears. I was a boy in a man's shoes. I made mistakes, dozens of them, many not mentioned here that shall perhaps be recorded in a further volume, but mistakes all the same. Now I am wiser, ever cynical to those who only regard me in passing, but with eyes wide open and a mind ready to accept anything should I be able to find tangible proof. The knowledge I have gained from the years I spent investigating the paranormal, I pass to you now. You will find it hidden in plain sight within these pages. There are several young men I have mentored in the field of paranormal investigation in recent years, and I am proud to say that they have gone on to not only further the foundation of my work, but to better it. I set out to define a legacy for myself, and I admit that my reasons were largely self-serving. But now, in my twilight years, I realize that a legacy only lives on if it is passed from generation to generation, much like many of the folktales I have dedicated my life to investigating. For a long time, I believed that the sole purpose of life was to undertake a journey of loss. For loss is inevitable. Death is inevitable. No longer do I believe this to be so. For while we shall all live, love, and lose, life is not measured by the number of tears shed or hours grieved. It is measured in the number of hearts touched and moments of happiness shared. The journey of life encompasses all, the difficult times as well as those of elation. The character we take to the grave is the sum of all those experiences. Does that character live on in another time or another place? I do not have proof as such to provide a definitive answer, though no longer do I fear to find out for myself. There are other stories to share with you, but they shall have to remain with me for now, for the hour is late and Jasmine calls. Hope you enjoyed tonight's tales, The Tainted Isle, featuring The Fallen House, The Bells of Weirdale, The Death of a Lord, The Haunting of Fenton House, The Man Who Did Not Die, The Mark of the Ripper, The Man I Became, by Dan Weatherer. Award-winning author Dan Weatherer was first published by Haunted Magazine in spring 2013. Aside from the publication of numerous short stories with a multitude of presses, his next major project was a solo collection of short stories titled The Soul That Screamed, winner of the Predators and Editors Readers Poll Best Anthology 2013. 
An accomplished playwright, Dan was the winner of the 2017 Soundwork UK Play Competition, a finalist in the Blackshaw Showcase Award 2016, and a two-time finalist of the Congleton Players One Act Festival 2016. Dan has had several of his plays appear at festivals and fringe events. The Dead Stage, a book detailing Dan's experiences as a novice playwright was published courtesy of Crystal Lake Publishing in October 2018. In 2019, Dan was nominated for a Local Heroes Award, The Sentinel, for his continued promotion of literacy and mental health issues in the city of Stoke-on-Trent. In 2020, Dan became a contributor for Creepypasta Stories and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, 2020 also saw the release of his novella, Cheslin Meyer, Domain Publishing. Presently, Dan contributes to the YouTube channel Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and his stage plays continue to be sold and performed worldwide. Check out Dan's website at www.danweatherer.co.uk. That's D A N W E A T H E R E R. .co.uk If you enjoyed tonight's story hosted by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley, you can search my name on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for additional previous stories. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks. Available now on audible.com or just visit paulsbooks.net. That's P-A-U-L-S-B-O-O-K-S dot net. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go... I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd really appreciate it. I'm your host for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland.